If you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Genesis 11. We're going to be in three different texts today. It should be on your, on your bulletin. And today is Martin Luther King weekend. And every year at, at this time, I, I, think it's, I think it's paramount that we spend uh, time speaking about how the, talking about how the gospel, how the Bible speaks about racism, about division. I think it's important that we understand that. Um, so that, that's what we're going to do today. And maybe a lighter note, it's a good thing to do also today. There's a couple Hawks fans in here. Now just saying, they might not win. And, and just saying, there may be 49er fans here too. And if I had a jersey... I would have worn it today. I did everything I could to find a 49er jersey. Look, look, look I, I am from California, and so, anyways, there's going to be good games. I, in one sense, I'm hoping, this is totally side note, I'm hoping the Broncos go all the way. I like Peyton Manning. He's broken every record. I'm like, just do it. Just go all the way. Prove to the Colts they shouldn't have let you go. So, but... I also wouldn't mind the 49ers to win, although I, I greatly realize that they might not today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could be. I could be. So anyways, so it should be interesting. It should be good. Um, I, I do have a Seahawks shirt on. I do have. It's the only one I have. I, I wanted a 40, and if I had a 49, it would have been over it. But anyways, I'm just prepared if my team loses. So anyways, no. Uh, but we're looking at division. It's Martin Luther King weekend, and I, I think it's extremely important every year that this time, especially at this time, we look at how the gospel speaks about division, how it looks at racism. Uh, pride has reared its head since the beginning of creation. Many of you probably know the story. So God creates and he makes angels. And, and there's one called Lucifer, otherwise known as the Day Star, otherwise known as Satan, and, and he makes him. And one day, at some point, Satan looks at himself, he looks at God, he looks at himself, he looks at God, he looks at himself, and he goes, I am beautiful, why am I serving him? And so he says, I don't want to serve him anymore, I think people should serve me, I should be God. And so he convinces a bunch of his other angel cohorts, and, and they cause a rebellion. It's not really like a fight. God just throws them out. Here, when you fight against God, you don't, it's not a fight. So they get thrown out, and then he comes to earth. He comes in the form of a snake into the garden, and what's the first thing that he does? He comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, you shouldn't serve God. You know if you rebel against him, eat the fruit, you'll actually be like God. You don't need to serve him. And now we see the very division, the very rebellion that first started in the heavens has now come to earth, and then man falls into sin. And ever since sin has come into the world, man has rejected God, sought to serve himself. In fact, man, we, we go to extremes to be served in worship. Man will oppress other people, will enslave other people, will force others to worship them or die. And you just look at history books. That's history. Throughout history, we see wars, nations attacking each other. So they can rule. History shows nations have been ripped apart from the inside of people groups within a nation. 
attacking each other. That's our history. I mean, black and white, it is our history here where racism has been very real and is very real today. If you think racism doesn't exist in America, then you're, you're naive. It is very, very real. We'll touch on it a little bit today, but my goal on this message will not be so much only a black and white, but just really looking at race in general. And we're going to get three questions. Where did races come from? How does the gospel unite all races? And how do races serve to glorify God? Those are three questions. We have three texts. We're going to make our way from Genesis um, all the way to Revelation today. And, and so let's pray that we can do this well and that God speaks, and that God moves our hearts. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. And God, the races you have created are beautiful. And every person on earth is made in the image of you. And I pray right now for your spirit to move powerfully in this room, that there is, and I know there is, There are seeds of racism here. There might be great seeds. There might be roots and trees. But God, whatever is here, I pray that, Lord, through your spirit and your word, you crush racism in our hearts. I pray that through your word today, we see how how we have been made new, that we would love because you have loved us. And that, God, one day I pray that we, especially in this body, would truly be a multiracial, multi-ethnic body worshiping you. God, be with us today. Help us to see how the creation of races serves to glorify you. In your name, Jesus, amen. So question one, how did the birth of many races come about? So we're going to turn to Genesis 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. I'm not going to have a stand up and down today. Normally, just so you know, we've been standing for the reading of the Word. We do that because it's God's Word. This is not like another book. This is the book. It's the divine-inspired Word of God. So normally... uh, Not for legalistic reasons, but simply for the honoring of God, we stand. But since we're going to be in three large texts, I just decided instead of this going up and down thing, we're just going to stay seated so you can stand in your hearts. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they followed a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come! Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and, there is only, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Let's just give a little context here. Let's make sure we know how we got to Genesis 11. 
There's a flood because of all manners rebellious, rebellious, except for, and everyone is destroyed except for Noah and his family. At the end of Genesis 9, the flood has receded. The waters have, have gone away. The earth is dried up. Noah, his family, and the animals, they all come out of the ark. Noah makes a sacrifice to God. God makes a covenant with Noah. The covenant is the rainbow he hangs up in the sky, saying, never again will I flood the earth to destroy it. We have a new beginning is what's happened. In fact, if you look at kind of the commands that God gives Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, he very much gives pretty much the same commands now in Genesis 9. In 9 verse 1 and 9 verse 7, God tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then we go to chapter 10 and we see the generations of Noah filling the earth. At first glance, it would seem that the flood has literally washed the sins of way. We have a new people, a new beginning, and now they're obedient to God. This is amazing. God has reversed it in the flood, at least that's what we could maybe be thinking. But then we come to chapter 11, and we see man is not sinless, but man is very sinful. Which tells us chapters 10 and 11 are not to be read with a chronological mindset. And this is key, because a lot of times we come to the Bible and we're like, oh, we'll just read it one, two, three, four, like the Bible. But it's not meant to be read like that. I mean, it's okay to read it, chronologically in a sense, but for us in our minds, no, the historical process of it was not always chronologically. Notice in chapter 11, it begins with, the whole earth had one language in the same words. Everyone has one language. But if you look at chapter 10, verse 5, verse 20, or verse 31, we come across things that say, the people spread out across their lands, each in their own language. Chapter 10, we have lots of different languages and people migrating to different parts of the earth in their language, based upon that. In chapter 11, we have one language. Why did he write it this way? Why didn't he just go from chapter 11 to chapter 10? He did it to make a point. After the flood, the generations of Noah did fill the earth, not because they're now obedient to God. They did it because God dispersed them. Man is still rebellious against God. The flood did not change the heart condition, which is why we still have to make our way to the cross, where Jesus dies on the cross for us. So the reason that we have chapter 11 and the way it is, the author is trying to, with a huge exclamation point, they did not spread out across the land because they were obedient. They spread out because they were rebellious and God moved them out. And he changed their language to do it. So what are the people doing here in in chapter 11? In verse 4, they want to build a city. They want to build a tower. They want the tower to reach the heavens. Why do they want to build a city, and why do they want to build a tower that reaches the heavens? Well, we see that also in verse 4. Let's just read the whole verse and, and pay attention to the first half and then the second half. The second half gives the reasons for the first half. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse over the face of the earth, of the whole earth. They built a city because they don't want to be dispersed over the whole earth. That's what you do. You build a city, you live in the city. We don't want to be dispersed over the whole earth, therefore we build a city. We want to make a great name for ourselves, therefore we're going to make a tower that goes to the heavens. So the reason they're building a city and they're building a tower is they want a great name for themselves and they don't want to be spread out. This is total rejection of God. Total rejection of what God has told them to do. Go fill and multiply in the earth. They say, no, we don't want to go fill and multiply the earth. We're going to build a city and we're going to stay right here and... We're going to make our name great. We don't care about you. 
We're going to make a tower. It's going to be massive. And, and truly today, it would be cool to see that tower. Like, they didn't have excavators. They didn't have power tools. They didn't have forklifts. Like, they're carrying it brick by brick, and they're moving these things. And it had been awesome to see how big they actually got the tower. It might even be like the eighth wonder of the world or however many wonders there are. It'd be neat. But God's not impressed. And look at what God does. I love this. In verse 5, we read, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Look at verse 7. And it says, Come, let us go down. Let us hear this. They built this massive big tower. They're saying, we're going to put it to the heavens. And we're going to make our name great. And God's like, well, I guess we could come way down there to their little tower. And we could check it out. Notice the author's writing it this way. This isn't like, you know, this incidental. He's making a point. God is not impressed with the tower. The tower doesn't dwarf God. Man's greatest creation is nothing to God. God's coming down to man's little itty-bitty tower. Piece of mud sticking up. I mean, you, you got to hear it. That's how it is. And then, and then just to, to point out who's making this tower, verse 5, we see the people are described as the children of man, literally the children of Adam. Well, who's Adam? Well, if we just go back a few pages to Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve are the very ones who sinned, rebelled against God, and because of them, every person is sinful. That's why you and me are sinful. It's because of Adam and Eve. Let's blame them. Because they sin, sin has been passed down to every single generation, every single person, which is why we needed that perfect person to come, Jesus Christ, who is absolutely sinless. So he's making a very big point. This tower is not made by God. This tower is made by sinful people who are still sinful, who need a Savior, and I'm going to come down to their little measly tower. And just note, God's not sitting back, kicked back on his divine lazy boy, impressed by what we do here on earth. He's not going, wow, if I didn't stop them, I wonder how tall they would have got that thing. He's not going, wow, that's pretty cool. He's not sitting and watching you going, wow, you really do work hard. I'm pretty impressed. He's not impressed with us. He's God. He's the one who with the word created everything. He's the one with the word right now keeps us all alive. And with a word, he takes our life in a moment. I mean, so let's just not think that God's sitting there going with his popcorn and lazy boy going, I'm, wow, this is really cool. He's not impressed here. He's never impressed, especially when sinful man rejects him. We exist because God loves us and he sustains us. And so what is God's response? Has his plan to fill the earth with man, been thwarted. Is he going, man, what am I going to do now? I wanted them to fill the earth. What am I going to do? Not at all. God changes their languages. And as we read in chapter 10, the people spread out all over the world based upon their language. The reason there are many nations, tribes, tongues today is because of Genesis 11. That that's where we find the origin of the creation of all the races. Now, let's not miss verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, this is powerful words here. God created man in his image, and therefore man is incredible. 
We are made in the image of God. We're made like no other creation. And because of that, we can do amazing things. We can't create like God does, but we create. We can make things. We send spaceships to the moon. We can make cell phones that we can talk to anybody at any point uh, of this, uh, any, at anywhere in this world. And we, we can do amazing things. Man is blessed by God. But what we see here in this verse is God is saying, that when sinful man comes together like they did here at the Tower of Babel, they can do some very sinful things. Incredibly sinful things. So God is changing the language, confusing them, that they will be dispersed as a means of also protecting. Because he says they will come together and nothing they desire to do will be impossible for them. But here is, the creation of many different races is a good thing. God does not do anything he does not want to do. God wasn't twisted. He didn't have his arm twisted in chapter 11 and chapter 10 going, man, they built this tower. What am I going to do? I have to now make these races. I didn't want to do this. No, God doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do. He used the sin at the Tower of Babel as the means of creating a multiracial, multiethnic world in which he sends all people out to fill the earth. He didn't have his arm twisted to do it. He used this as the means of accomplishing his will. And the creation of many nations prevents sinful man from uniting together and living in a collective sense against God. Let me propose just one reason why this is good. If all of man was able to unite in one language, they would easily be able to wipe out and destroy every Christian. No obstacle in their communication. No obstacle that, that divides them in the way that they know each other and work together. And so there are an immense amount of obstacles that give rise to the spread of the gospel through all the nations. There are many obstacles. But the obstacles are actually used to, by God to preserve the church so the gospel can spread to all the nations. I just propose that as, as one very likely, very real possibility of why it is a very good thing that God created in many nations. We'll look at more benefits at the last point. So let me summarize, and I think this is where some blanks come in. It says, let me, uh, uh, God chose to create many different races as a means of controlling sin, protecting the saints, his people, accomplishing his will, and glorifying his name. He desires that the earth be filled and multiplied, and he accomplished that. And then if we go on into chapter 12, which we're not going to, we would then see, who does he call? A man named Abram, which he changes his name to Abraham. And what's one of the first things that he says? I will bless you, so you will be a blessing to what? To all the families on earth, to all the nations. We see the redemption plan unfolding right after chapter 11. So we have all these nations, and one might say, well, how, how is the good news going to go to all these nations? How are all these nations going to be united? And God then chooses Abraham right then at that moment and says, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing through Jesus Christ who will come as your offspring to all nations. So let's turn to chapter 2, verse 11. We see how all races came about. Let's see how the gospel crushes the sin of racism. Chapter 2, 11, and we're going to go to verse 22. It says, 
And we did this a year ago. I was only going to preach this text. We did this less than a year ago. I was like, well, we're going to look at it a little bit different way because we just went through Ephesians, and that's kind of why we're doing the, the three text thing today. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, remember that? Remember when we did Ephesians 2? And we got to Ephesians 2, 4 and said, but God being rich in mercy, and that's how he saves us. And then we get to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, that's Gentiles and Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place by God, by, for God by the Spirit. Let me just give context, understand what's happening. Ephesians is an amazing letter. I love Ephesians. Probably one of my most favorite letters in the New Testament. And I love Ephesians 1, how it talks about how uh, from the very beginning, God has, has set forth this plan of redemption. As we come into chapter 2, we see that we're all, doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, whatever race you want to say, we're all saved by grace. But then a question could come about, well, how are the Gentiles brought in? We understand how Jews are. We've been given the covenants. But how are Gentiles? They weren't given the covenants that we read about in the Old Testament. They're not blood-linked to, to Abraham. So how do they come into the family of God? How do we become a people? And so that's what, that's what Paul's addressing. He's saying, let me show you how Jew and Gentile come together because of the gospel. Now, now hear this. Jew and Gentile, they hate one another. I mean, here in America, the black and white was huge. You've got to escalate that to get to the Jew-Gentile. This is massive. It is between every single race in the world. Jews don't like anybody else. If you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. Jews consider Gentiles to be dirty, filthy dogs. All of Jews consider themselves um, the chosen people, the privileged people. They looked at circumcision Rather than being a sign of the covenant and by faith and grace in God, they looked at it as a sign of superiority. So they looked down upon the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they hated the Jews because Gentiles are very polytheistic. They have many, many, many gods. And they have these Jews that are saying, you don't serve the one true God. It's only this God. And so there's always this opposition that occurs. Jews and Gentiles living together is like rubbing like 50 grit sandpaper all over your body. It's just painful and bloody. Like that's what it is. 
There's no peace between these two types of people. The Jews, they want their Messiah to come back so he will crush the Gentile oppression that they are under, raise the Jews back up, be their king, and lead them to rule all other nations. That's the Jews. And the Gentiles just want to crush the Jews. There's no way these two groups could be united. And this division, it's not just limited to that, though. It's very alive today in between black and white. And we can, I mean, many different races. It's very much alive today. Where I lived before I came here, racism was alive and thriving. Literally, you can talk to Mike about it. He probably knows it better than I do. Um, white people live on this side of the river. Black people lived on this side of the river. It was that clear. It was that clear where we live. And, and you don't go to certain places if you're white, and you don't go to certain places if you're black. And that's today. That's in 2014. It is, it is alive today. Back in 2003, the year that I, I moved there, there was massive riots that were there because of racism. Not too long ago, in June 6, 1998, in Texas, a man named James Byrd, a 49-year-old African-American, was beaten and chained by his ankles and dragged for two miles until he died. That's, in, that's like 14, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. That's not even that long. That's not even a generation ago. We are naive if we think racism doesn't exist today. It is, and exists, and it flourishes and those are a few examples, and we could just go on. But racism has affected the human race for thousands of years, and it will continue to raise its ugly head and do all it can to reach havoc until the day Christ returns. That is what it will do. And at the root of racism is pride. It is pride saying, I'm better than that person. I deserve more than that person. It says I'm superior than you, and it denies that they're made in the image of God. And that's when we get down to the root of it. It's saying, I am made in the image of God. You are not. Or I am made in the right image. I might deny God. So I'm made in the perfect image, and you're just some imperfection. Racism is full of hate, envy, bitterness. And ultimately, it says, you, you're created to serve me. This, this, is, this is where it's at. This is very real when Paul's writing this between Jews and Gentiles. So Paul, what he says here is extremely applicable to that day, and it is extremely applicable to our day also. And he is saying that the church is a place where all nations are welcomed. Racism is to be absent in the church. And so let's look at why. I'm just going to go through a list of things, and they're up on the screen, so that's helpful. The gospel has brought near... This is verse 13. Has brought near, meaning Gentiles, because they were considered far away. They didn't have the covenants. They've been brought near, who were far away, um, and they brought them near. We've joined them together, Jew and Gentile. In verse 14, we see the gospel has broken down the wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Now, there's two walls here. There's one, there's literally a wall that went around the Jerusalem temple. A literal four and a half foot wall, and on it were 13 signs that read, no foreigners to enter, no Gentile is to enter within the forecourt and that balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. 
Can't be more clear. You cross this wall, you will die. This is our wall of hostility. You stay outside the wall. But there's a greater wall also, and it's the one that existed in the hearts that built that wall. And it's the one that existed not just a Jew against Gentile, but Gentile against Jew. And what we're told is that the wall is broken down in the flesh of Jesus. At the cross. And I emphasize enough in verse 13, going back, the Gentiles are brought near. Why? By the blood of Christ. It's all by the gospel. Everything about the, the unity that takes place through diverse races is because of the gospel. In verse 13, we see it's clearly the blood of Christ. Verse 14, it's the, it's the broken flesh of Christ. It's the flesh, his broken body. In verse 16, we see the gospel has reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to whom? To God. In verse 18, the gospel has given the Holy Spirit to both Jews and Gentiles so that they both have access to the Father. In verse 19, the gospel has made us, Jew, Gentile, equal citizens in the kingdom of God. There's a new nation, a new kingdom that has come about. It's the kingdom of God and Jew, Gentile, whoever believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that at the cross he died, that we would be saved. We're made citizens of that kingdom. In verse 19, the gospel has made us brothers and sisters in the family of God. We're not just citizens. We're brothers and sisters. This is why for quite a while now, one of the things we've been emphasizing is we're family. It's important. Church is family. We might not always like each other. We might not always want to be family. But we are. We're saved. And not only are we citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. And then it just even, it even gets a more amazing. Verses 21 and 22. The gospel has made us, Jew and Gentile, into a holy temple into which God dwells. So this, this, this kingdom, this church, this family, us as brothers and sisters, is the very body that is the temple of God, in which God says, I dwell there. I dwell in a multiracial, multiethnic people. That is my church. That is my bride. It's not just white. It's not just black or Chinese or Korean or Thai or whatever other country you want to say. It is a multiracial, multiethnic people, which is where God dwells. That is his body. And how does it occur? It's all at the cross. It's everything about the cross. There's no unity without the cross, but it's because Christ comes at the cross and preaches peace to those who are far Gentiles, peace to those who are near, because both Gentiles and Jews need the gospel, that then they're able to be saved, forgiven. And notice what we read in verse 15. This is powerful. It says, That Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Do you see what that is? He creates one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He creates one new man in place of the two. Let me just read Galatians 3.28. It says it pretty clear too, in case, in case we're, we're not seeing it yet. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? 
Paul's not saying we all look the same. Paul's not saying there's not actually distinctions in the body. There are physical distinctions between male and female. There are physical distinctions between different races. But what he is saying is that because of Christ, we've been transformed into a new people. Christian. The church. Saints. Family of God. And in this family, in this body, in whom God says, I dwell there, I live there, he says that there is to be African American, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Thai, Filipino, white, Indian, and we all exist because we've all, we all exist together in perfect unity because we've been made into one new man. We're formed into the body of Christ. We're made new. We've been forgiven. Our racial identity, which we used to be known about before we came to know Christ, is no longer our real identity. Our real identity is that we've been, we are now children of God, is that we are in the kingdom of God, is that we are of the body of God, that we are church, that we are saints, that we are Christian, and that God dwells in us. That's good news, right? Like that's the body of Christ. It's not, your identity is not about your color of the skin. It's a beautiful body because of all the colors. Be bland if we were white. <laughs> Aren't you glad it's not? It's a beautiful array of colors that forms the body of Christ in which God dwells. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we're made into a new people. And the people of God and our identity has completely changed. The reason we love all people, and we have unity with all people, is we've been made new, and we've been made into a new people in Christ. That's why there's no division, or there's not to be division. The gospel of Jesus is so glorious because it's not meant for one nation, but it's for all nations and has the power to save all nations. When the nations gather together to worship God, there's no racism because we are a new people. Don't misunderstand me, though. The church is messed up. That's why in our prayer in the beginning, I'm praying that, God, there are seeds of racism here. And some of you might be even like sitting right now, man, I hate this stuff that he's saying. Where I grew up before, or where we were before, there were many, many Christians, they did not realize how much their culture has affected them and how racist they had actually become. I remember having conversations with people, not only between about, about their dislike for African Americans, but for especially people in the Middle East right now. And they had their very much choice words of what they thought God should do and we should do as America. The culture does affect us a great deal. And so realize, while we might verbally say, well, of course we're the people of God, and there's no... There are seeds of sin that want to get planted in us. And there might be seeds that we're not aware of also. Paul, when he writes to the, first, to the Corinthians in his first letter, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. If you read Corinthians, it is the most messed up church that could ever exist. I mean, it's like dysfunctional church. That could be on the title of the church. Like, it is. They're, 
Everything in there is dysfunction and division. But do you notice the basis for the unity he's calling them to come to? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the one who went to the cross, by the one who in his flesh broke down the wall of hostility, by the one who preached peace to those who are far and those who are near, by the one who who reconciles us to God, gives us the spirit that we all have access to the Father. By him, I'm calling you to come one. Be who you are, is what he's saying. There is division in the church at times, and we struggle at that. We have ideas, I think the leader should do this, or I think this should happen like this, or why didn't I get consulted on this decision? Or, I mean, you know it. You probably had some thought like that today. I'm, I'm in there too. I'm like, man, why didn't they do that? <laughs> Satan just wants to cause division. Sin in us wants division to occur. So I just want to take a moment. I just want us to stop. I want us to spend time in prayer, even right now before we move to the next point, repenting of racism, repenting of ways that we're divisive, repenting of pride that causes us to look down on others. I just want us to take a moment and be honest. Where is there division in your life right now? Who do you find yourself looking down upon? Where is pride of superiority active in your life? Is it people of a different race? Is it those of an opposite sex? Is it those in your field of work or in a different field of work? Perhaps it is those you work with, is your family members. Where is division present? Um, I just want us to take moments. And let's just pray. And, and I think there's space on your, in your sermon guide there that you can write out a prayer. I encourage you to write it. Now, you might not want to actually write down that I'm racial towards, you know, this people group. Or Put an X down. We don't need to see the word. You need to know the words. But write it down. If you don't write it down now, I encourage you to write it down later just because I think it's it's good to write down things. It helps processing. Um, Let's take a few moments and let's just pray. We'll spend a few moments in quiet. Uh, Just pray. And and maybe you're sitting here going, man, I don't even know if I'm racist. Pray, God, am I racist? Do I have division? Where, Where is these things in my life? They're there. I mean, they are there. It's just part of the sin that's in us. It wants to cause division. So let's just pray right now, asking God to help us to love all people and to reveal wherever there might be division. So let's take a few moments. Father, I, I ask, ask for repentance for where I know that there's areas that I, I, I do look down upon others. God, I know when, when people don't act like I think they should, that I, I do look down. And Lord, I, I ask for forgiveness. Help me 
to not have division in me. I pray for us as a church, reveal that and rip it out by your spirit. May whatever division is here, whatever hostility is, is in our heart right now, whether it's towards a people group or a person, just expose it and remove it, God, and fill us with love. The love that comes from you, the love that has made us into your family. In your name, Jesus, amen. My summary there is, and this is the next blanks, God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has formed the church to be made up of a diverse people who are united as one man in Christ. That's the good news, that we're one in Christ. So how is it, question three, how is it through the gospel that diversity of races serves to glorify God? If you have your Bibles, Revelation 7. This is one of the most beautiful, glorious pictures I think we have of the church. We're going to read verses 7, 9 through 17. This is a picture that John has given of heaven at this moment. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's the one who sits on the throne. The Lamb is next to him here. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is the church. It's one of the most beautiful pictures we have. It's a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, language, and standing before the throne, just worshiping God, shouting out, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let me just quote Revelation 5, 9. I find it helpful here also. This is, this is everybody singing again. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we have Genesis 11, where man thinks they're going to resist the will of God. And they're not going to multiply, and they're going to build their tower and build their city and make their name great. Genesis 12, or God disperses them and creates many different languages. Now we have all these tribes. How, how is the gospel going to go forth? How are people going to be saved? Genesis 12, God chooses a man named Abraham. says, through you I will bless all the people on the earth, which Paul translates for us in Galatians. 
The offspring is Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus all people are blessed. We see that clearly in Ephesians. Christ has come. He's the one who reconciles all people who put their faith in him that they would become one new people. So that one day, the gospel which has transcended all cultures, all nations, all tribes, all languages, now there is this multi-ethnic, multi-racial group standing before the throne praising God. What man thought they were doing to resist the will of God served the purpose of God of creating the the races that God would be greatly glorified because he's not just glorified by one nation. The gospel's not just good for white people. It's not just good for African Americans. It's not just good. He's fill in the blank. It's not just good for them. It's good for everybody. It's the only gospel that has the power to save all people. The sin of Babel did not thwart the plans of God. It served to glorify God. Isn't that amazing? The gospel transcends all cultures. The gospel is amazing. It transcends all nations, tribes, and tongues, and it brings unity. In heaven, people still look different, but there is unity in the diversity. It is the gospel alone that can unite all people before the throne of God. My summary, and this is the blanks. The gospel is the good news for every person under the sun that they would be joined together with other believers before God to live and worship him forever. It's the good news for all people. So let me just walk through three things. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but three things on what this means today. Number one, let us confidently proclaim the gospel to all nations knowing that people will be saved. The gospel is the power for people and all nations to be saved. The blood of Jesus redeems people, what we saw in Revelation 5-9, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The gospel is the hope for all people. The gospel is the greatest need for all people. The gospel is the only way people come before the Father and live with him forever. It is through the gospel that we are given the Spirit, made sons and daughters of God, that we would become citizens of God, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Therefore, as the church, we must be missionally minded. The gospel is the hope. The gospel is what people need to hear. So as the church, who has been given the gospel, and has been given the spirit, that we would go tell the gospel, what do we need to do? We need to go tell the gospel. We're called to be missionaries in our neighborhoods, workplaces, gym, home, our state, our country, and in other nations. Wherever we are, we're missionaries. When you leave here today, and there might be unbelievers here even now, so we're missionaries. But as we leave here today, you might go out to eat. You're a missionary at that restaurant. You're a missionary to your neighbor. When you go to the gym, you're a missionary there. When you go tubing at Mount Rainier, you're a missionary there. When you go to Guatemala, you're a missionary there. Wherever you are, you're a missionary. So I want us to take time again. I just want us to pause. This is different. We don't act like this. We functionally might say this, or we verbally might say this, but functionally we deny this. We might all say, well, of course we're missionaries. But really only that guy does it. That's not what we see. We've all been given the spirit that we would speak the gospel. So let us just take moments, and let's just pray that God would show us where he wants to serve locally and globally.
Or does he want you to serve right now? Right now where you're at. And then ask him, God, are you going to be moving me to some other country? Either temporary or permanent. Let's just take a moment. And let's just pray as a church also. So pray for yourself locally, globally. Pray for our church, Timberline. That God reveal where he wants us to serve locally, which obviously is in this community and, and where we live. And globally, where does he want us to go? So let's spend a few moments praying. Our Father, we come to you as, as your children. And just as a child comes to his father for instructions, I pray that we come to you now for instructions. Where? Where do you want us to be, God? We know you want us to be here in Lacey because this is where we are. Is this the only place you want us to be? Where else? What nations? What people groups? What tribes? What languages? How? And God, we're a small church. You know that. We don't have a lot of resources. But God, you have every resource. And so God, I just ask, take us where you want us to go. Help every person here know that they're a missionary. Help every person know that every moment of every day, they proclaim you. Fill us with strength and boldness so that we may may do that. In your name, Jesus, amen. Just so you know, like like at this moment in my life, I have felt confirmed many times that I am to be here in America equipping the church. That's where I feel at this moment I am to be, but I desire at any moment if God moves me to go to a different country. That's where I would love to be in a whole other sense. Like there's these two loves. I want to be here. But at any moment, if God wants to move me to another country where there's people that don't know him, how do we say no to that? That's my desire. Now I will be in the States as long as God wants me to be in the States. But the moment, the moment I feel him moving us to another country, my bags are packed. I don't even need bags. I want us to pray that way. That's how God would move us. Number two, let us be aware that Satan wants to cause division. Let's just be real, because so often we just deny it. Like right now in your marriage, you just deny that so much. And it's obvious because you're mad at your spouse. And many of you are mad at your spouse right now. Many of you are mad at your spouse. Seth and I got in a fight yesterday. I know. No, it was two days ago. It wasn't yesterday. Yesterday was the normal, you know, and there's no fighting. We're going to fight. You know who was wrong? Her. (laughs) Well, that's what my sinful self says. She's got an issue. You ask her. She'll give you the wrong answer. She'll tell you it was me. I said in humility, so please don't like, take that out of the recording. No, but, but it's obvious. Look at your work. Who are you mad at? 
You're mad at those you work with because they don't do what you want. They don't operate that you want. So what do you do? You get mad at them. Because of what they do is creating hostility in your heart so that rather by loving them and being peaceful towards them, you got rage and wrath and bitterness and anger and slander against them. That's division. Think about it. The way we live so much denies what we see in the Word. That sin is still alive. Yes, we are made new. And that is good. And we are made new and Christ dwells with us through His Spirit that we would live new lives. We still are plagued by sin. And we want to blame other people for the problems around us. When as long as we live in this world, there will be sin and there will be bad things that happen And those are simply the things that are the occasion for what brings the emotions to our heart, like anger, like division. When you're mad, when you're angry, the sin's in you. The sin is in you. And if we got that, think about how that would transform our marriages. When rather than, yeah, my wife or I, we do this massive blundering type thing. Rather than attacking, it's, it's peace, it's love, it's coming alongside. And I do not speak this from like, like, I do this well. Like, so don't, I'm not coming, man. If you did this like I do, you would have a marriage like I do. And my wife is amazing. But we mess up all the time. We are new. We are new in Christ, and Spirit dwells in us, and that is amazing. Because of that, the promises of God are real for us right now. But sin attacks, and it wants to cause us to take our eyes off of God. So let's just be real and regularly come to repentance. Regularly ask God, why am I feeling this way? What is this division? What is this anger? What is this, what is this that's in me? And let's rip it out when it's the size of an acorn than when it's the size of an oak tree. It's a lot harder to rip out an oak tree than an acorn. You can go try. Let's pray that way. Let us know that we're going to be attacked by sin. We will be so until Christ returns. But we do have victory. We don't have to succumb to it. We're not slaves to it. That's Revelation 6 or Romans 6. We are not slaves to sin. We've been brought now into the family of God. Third, let us seek to display the unity we have in Christ through diversity. I want us to pray. I want us to commit to praying that we'll become a, a Revelation 7 church. We live in a multiracial, multiethnic area. One of the reasons we do is because it's military. People are coming in all the time. That's beautiful. Let's open up our doors. Let's, let's make sure we're going to all of those who not only look like us, but especially those who don't look like us. And, and, through, and through our diversity... Let us testify to the community of the unity we have in Christ. You get it? In our diversity, because we're all different. (laughs) That's a weirdo half the time. (laughs) We are united in Christ. That's the only way. Because there ain't nothing else uniting us other than Christ. We might like the same sport, same team, probably not. Same something else. But if all we like is, is this quality, as soon as that quality changes, or as soon as that is attacked, we're going to become at odds with one another. We know that's how life acts. You join a group, 
You're friends with those on the group. Someone on the group does something wrong, gets kicked off the group. We're not his friend anymore. Because they're not part of the group anymore. They're not part of whatever it is, club, or they don't like the same thing. But when we've been made new in Christ, we are new. New creations were made into a new family of God, something that we're not able to be removed from. So let us pray that God does a work in us and we become a multiracial, multiethnic church for his glory. Not for us, but for his glory. So this world, this community would really see what the church is like. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and you are, you're an amazing God. You created all these races as a means to serving you and magnifying you, as a means of showing that your gospel is able to penetrate every single culture, that your gospel truly is the hope for every single person on this planet. And God, you're glorified because of that. And and help us as a church to glorify you. Help us as a church not, not to fall into the sin of division. Help us to cling to the cross, to cling to what you have done, and that you have made us new. We are new in you. Help us to know that. Help us to be filled with strength and boldness. And God, may we come alongside of each other, killing hostility. Help us to kill it through your spirit, God. Just rip it out. Even if it hurts, let's just rip it out. That we continue to experience your grace and your love, and that we truly be your church. Because God, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.